What do you take for granted? Of course, there's all kinds of ways to answer this question. I think the pandemic actually revealed all kinds of things that we take for granted. Some things basic, some things profound. For example, we have our just-in-time supply chain systems. You know, those systems that when the store is running out of toilet paper, it tells a, a warehouse somewhere, send toilet paper. And, uh, and as we go to the store, we realize, oh, this is something I've never had to think through before. You, you see toilet paper shortage on the Internet, and everybody's there, and those systems fail us. Perhaps you've taken for granted the ability to go into a restaurant or on an airplane and uh, without a mask, uh, to go on, go to some of these places without having a suspicion of those around you. Maybe you, like me, took even our gathering here at Hinson on Sunday mornings for granted. I think one of the interesting things about what it means to be human is that we can not just take basic things for granted, but we can take great things for granted. For example, my wife Natalie makes what some in this congregation would say are the most amazing chocolate chip cookies that they have ever tasted in their lives. Uh, they are amazing. But as, as someone who regularly gets the chance to eat these cookies... Uh, I must confess that they're not quite as good as when I first had them. I think of our own lead pastor. Maybe if you've been here for a while, you've heard him say something like, you know, every time I see Mount Hood, I tell my kids, look, look, there's Mount Hood. Mount Hood is beautiful. Mount Hood is amazing. Well, I, I'm not nearly maybe as godly as Michael, because when I see Mount Hood on a drive, I, my heart often does not result in jubilant praise. <laughs> you know, we, we can take even the most important things, important relationships in our life, more important people in our life for granted. I think of some of my own regrets not spending more time with my family in between when I moved back home after college and when I came out here to Portland. I, I thought I was so busy with work and with ministry. But it wasn't until I moved back and have no idea when I'm, if I'm going to ever move back to Sacramento that I realized I took them for granted. If you're like me and you can take the best of human accomplishments or the best of relationships for granted, the best of what God has made for granted, I think it begs the question, can we take God for granted? There are all kinds of conversations kind of in the broader culture, especially in the evangelical broader culture, about how Western civilization has taken Christian principles for granted. Uh, the, our, our culture wants to reap the fruit of Christian thinking, but wants nothing to do with its roots. I think if we're Christians, though, even if this is true, this shouldn't be surprising to us. You know, it's not like the people making decisions along these lines are studying the Bible thoroughly or reading church history to learn from mistakes in their free time. But can those who claim they know God take him for granted? After all, Christians assert that 
God is the creator of the universe. He possesses all power, all knowledge, all wisdom. He is the fount of love and grace and mercy. Surely those people, those people who know this God, can't take this God for granted. Because if they did, is is a God taken for granted functionally a God at all? This morning we are in the book of Psalms, Psalm 95, which can be found on page 524 in the Pew Bible in front of you. Here we have a praise psalm with a twist from an unknown explicit author, though the book of Hebrews tells us that this was written by David. You know, it's not totally clear how this psalm was used in the life of Israel, though some think it refers to, or it was used as Israelites uh, traveled to different festivals in Jerusalem. And our passage this morning is a call to worship, and perhaps for some, a wake-up call to worship. So let me read our passage, Psalm 95. This is the word of the Lord. Come, let us shout joyfully to the Lord. Shout triumphantly to the rock of our salvation. Let us enter his presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout triumphantly to him in song. For the Lord is a great God, a great king above all gods. The depths of the earth are in his hand and the mountain peaks are his. The sea is his. He made it. His hands form the dry land. Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our maker, for he is our God. And we are the people of his pasture, the sheep under his care. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart as at Meribah, as on that day at Massa in the wilderness where your fathers tested me. They tried me, though they had seen what I did. For 40 years, I was disgusted with that generation. I said, they are a people whose hearts go astray. They do not know my ways. So I swore in my anger, they will not enter my rest. If you're here and you are a note taker, here is kind of the the big idea. We're going to look at this text in kind of two points. Here's kind of the takeaway. Heed the call to worship God from the sheep and from the shepherd. We see here uh, the passage in many ways splits up into two sections, verse 1 through 7, and an extended invitation to worship, and then uh, in verse 8 through 11, which is a stern warning from God himself. So let's look first. Heed the call to worship God from the sheep. What we see here in our text is are kind of two complementary sets of invitations to worship God. Uh, so we'll take them kind of one at a time, noting that they in some ways build on each other. It's worth noting here right at the outset that, that this praise section this, of the psalm is, is rather unique because uh, it's an invitation from one of God's people to another instead of simply giving a command. So let's look at verse 1 and verse 2. Come, let us shout joyfully to the Lord. Shout triumphantly to the rock of our salvation. Let us enter his presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout triumphantly to him in song. 
Here we have an invitation from one of God's people to another to shout joyfully and triumphantly to God. These verses in many ways parallel one another and complement one another to encourage us toward a lively outward expression of worship. And so I just want to first draw your attention to the tone of this text. The tone is it's electric. It's jubilant. Uh, you know, as we've gone through this occasional series on the Psalms, you, you've probably heard it said that, that this book, the Psalms, is the Bible's hymnal. It's the Bible's prayer guide to give us vocabulary to express every human emotion. And so the Psalms help us express our joy and our sorrows, our hopes and our fears, our, our spiritual depression, our righteous anger before the Lord. So I'll be the first to say I am glad that we can sing songs here at Henson that miserable Christians can sing. But I'm also really glad that we can sing songs of joy and triumph in the right things. You know, we don't have to sacrifice tone for content. You know, I think of last week's uh, Easter service. Or I think of our singing so far in this service where we are are celebrating the God who has made all things and who uh, offers salvation to his people, who calls people from all places to worship him. You know, this verse in many ways reminds me of what feels like a past life when I used to serve as a music team leader. And as I used to ask people to play for... For a normal set, for singspiration, kind of an old word that maybe some of you know, I would often wonder to myself, what is the most important instrument to the music team? And I used to think to myself, all right, I've got to have drums. Like, I need to have drums. Uh, actually, Jess, who played drums this morning, I, I've asked Jess to play drums for me at, in a camp setting. Like, I need to have drums. Uh, I would think, you know, I, I would really love a violin player because there's just something about strings that pull on the heartstrings. It helps build the epic bridges. I would think, I need my brother on the piano because my brother is a very talented improv pianist. What would you say is the most important instrument to the music team? You know, maybe you're newer here and you can't quite put your finger on why the, the music here stands out to you. And if you're thinking, well, uh, your lead guitar player is really good or Holly Schnur is fantastic on the piano, I would totally agree with you. We are, we are very fortunate to have skilled and godly leadership on our music team. But they aren't the most important instrument on our music team. The most important instrument on our music team is the choir. It's you. Here at Henson, we have an intentional philosophy of music ministry to highlight the voices of every individual. Whether you are young, whether you are old, whether you were in an acapella group when you were in college, or whether you're scared to sing in your shower at home. Uh, this is why our music is, you know, just loud enough where you can hear the instruments, you know, to stay on beat, but you can also hear and see one another. So to be a part of Henson's choir, you, you don't have to know parts. You don't have to uh, be able to read music. You just have to know how to, you just have to know the rock of our salvation. 
the Lord. So let me encourage you, just as this, uh, the opening of our psalm encourages us, I don't encourage you to, to sing loudly. You know, Christians, we, we are a weird group of people, and I love it. You know, we, we get together on Sunday mornings every week, and we dedicate some of our time to singing, to joyful singing. And singing is kind of a unique thing, uh, you know, giving physical expression to what we feel in our hearts. Uh, uh, singing and music, it often connects what we know to be true in our heads to what we feel in our hearts. Uh, singing can, can warm cold hearts. Singing can, can soften hard hearts. Singing is a soul-strengthening exercise. And this isn't just true for us as individuals. I, was, I don't normally stand up in front on a Sunday morning, and, uh, and there were some times where I would, I would just stop singing, and I would listen to your voices kind of wash over me and to encourage me, as I know that all of us are going through various trials, various challenges, have various opportunities in front of us, but we are all confessing to know and to sing to the rock of our salvation. So why do we sing? We get hints of it in verse 1. We sing to the rock of our salvation, but we also have uh, more reasons as we see in verse 3 to 5. So let me read these for us. You know, why do we sing? For the Lord is a great God, a great king above all gods. The depths of the earth are in his hand and the mountain peaks are his. The sea is his. He made it. His hands formed the dry land. Well, what is the basis of this kind of joyful, triumphant singing? It's, it's God himself. The psalmist delights to worship God because he rules over everything, because he's made it. And so by praising God as creator, God's people acknowledge that God has power that we cannot begin to comprehend. You know, the psalmist here is, is, is pulling no cultural punches. We know that many other groups of people uh, during this time believed in either regional or task-specific gods. The psalmist here is putting that narrative to rest. Yahweh is greater than all other gods. And this is still true today. You know, the, the things that people get excited about, uh, the things that people put their hope in, those things have changed, but they still utterly pale in comparison to the God who has made all things. Let me just give you one. Let, let's consider uh, science and technology. You know, people today are, are quick to write off God because of the technological progress we have made. You know, we've made progress to subdue the earth. We've made progress to manipulate the world God has made um, uh, to, to make ourselves look great. But have we really, I just pause and think, have we really made that much progress? There's a strong case to be made that we've actually made notable technological progress in the world of bits, but not in the world of atoms. There's kind of a, a joke by a venture capitalist that people in the 1970s were promised flying cars by 2010, and all we got was 140 characters. 
But God, however, God does not deal in the world of internet or of bits, but God deals in the world of atoms. And as R.C. Sproul says, there are no maverick molecules in our universe. So just consider here, as we look at verse 3 to 5, let's just consider for a moment the depths of the earth and the mountain peaks. Now, if you have watched the news at any level, you're probably familiar with the name Elon Musk. Um, he's been showing up in the news a lot because he wants to buy Twitter for a lot of money. And, and Elon is most famous for revolutionizing the car industry through Tesla, electric vehicles that we see on the streets here in Portland. He's also revolutionized the space industry through uh, his company SpaceX. Elon's basically like the modern-day Iron Man. He's, he's kind of on the cutting edge of technology. So did you know that Elon has a, a tunneling company? He has a tunneling company called the Boring Company because it you know, bores holes in the ground. You know, Elon got so fed up with soul-destroying traffic in Southern California that he started a company to dig tunnels underneath the city to enable rapid point-to-point transportation. Okay? And he's got this machine called the, the Proof Rock that can tunnel one mile per week, which is the fastest in the industry. It's actually pretty remarkable. Go to the website. It's really interesting. But for perspective, tunneling at one mile per week is a pace four to five times slower than a garden snail. So what we have here, we have the, we have the height of human ingenuity, the guy who can send a spaceship to Mars, the guy who can revolutionize a, a, a whole industry, making minuscule progress in the depths of the earth. But meanwhile, our God, our God formed the dry land. Our God looks at Mount Hood, Mount Shasta, Mount Everest, and says, mine. I think we're so fortunate. I mean, it's why people move to Portland in some ways. We're we're so fortunate to live in Portland, to live in Oregon, where we are within an hour of Mount Hood, an hour of the ocean. And the psalmist here is saying, you know, these are illustrations to remind us of how small we are and how big, how great God is. It's to remind us that there's, there's nothing that people place their hope in today that can dethrone God as creator, not technology, not government. You know, if, if we see that God possesses and owns and creates all of these things, uh, it makes things like, uh, like accumulating wealth, uh, building up our own names, earning God's favor seem like ridiculous notions. You know, so God as creator, it, it's one of the first truths that kids learn. It's one of the first truths that Christians learn. And, and then I feel like Christians get excited and learn about all these other things and leave the doctrine of God as creator behind. Um, but I just want to encourage us this morning to, to don't lose your wonder. Don't take God as creator for granted. And the psalmist here encourages us to celebrate the God who owns the world of Adams. But it gets better. Let's look at verse 6 and 7. 
here is kind of the, the second set of invitations from one sheep to another sheep to worship the Lord. Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, the sheep under his care. It gets better. God is not only the transcendent Lord over all creation, but he's also the God who draws near to his people. So while the first set of invitations to, uh, from one sheep to another was characterized by triumphal and thankful shouting, the second invitation is a reverent one. We are encouraged to both make a joyful noise and to approach God with lowly reverence. So what leads to humble worship? It's God's relationship with his people. We see here that God is not only the maker, but he is also our maker. God has initiated a relationship with his people, and through it we can know his presence. The first audience would have understood kind of this shepherd sheep language in, in, in broad terms to, to, re- to reference a, a covenantal relationship between God and his people. That's just to say that uh, there was a mutual commitment here, a, a commitment uh, from Israel to God that he was their shepherd and a commitment from God to Israel that he uh, saw them as their sheep. I love the language here. Uh, the language here is is vivid. Even though it's not stated here, it's poetry, it kind of evokes emotions in us. Here is the language of provision and protection from God. The sheep have great trust in their shepherd, resulting in great peace. This this may even be a picture of what uh, of what we may what we're going to talk about in a little bit of rest. This phrase here uh, in verse 7, the sheep under his care can literally be translated the sheep of his hand. And so we see that the same hand that shaped the world are the same hands that care tenderly for his people. And so as we come to the end of the first part of the psalm, we recognize that God is both sovereign creator and he is the compassionate shepherd. But as I'm sure you heard me read this psalm, we see the turn from a mile away. And because there is this turn, this change of tone and perspective, we are forced to ourselves, we are forced to ask ourselves a question. How do you know if God is your shepherd? And we are indirectly given the answer here. You know if you're a sheep, if you today can hear the shepherd's voice. So we move kind of to the the second part of our sermon. And and here I want to encourage, I want to exhort, just like the psalmist does here for us, using God's perspective, heed the call to worship God. Heed the call to worship God from God himself, from the shepherd. This psalm issues a warning to all who come to gather and worship God for his power, verses 1 to 5, and his presence, verses 6 to 7. 
here is a reminder, a stark reminder to us that God's people do not only have a deliverer, they don't only have a shepherd, but they serve a king who brings all of this power and presence to bear on his people. So I want you first just to observe here um, the change of voice in the psalm. It's, it's kind of right there in the main idea here. The, the first half of this psalm is one sheep talking to another sheep. It's a language of God's people encouraging one another to come to God with great joy and with humble reverence. But now the songwriter assumes the voice of the shepherd, speaking in an oracle-like fashion on behalf of God. You know, what, what we see here is, is this is not a quote from another place in the Old Testament. It's, 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 a, it's a helpful, direct, artistic liberty to embody the voice of God to address God's people. So as we look at this section, God is, God is interested in one primary thing here, which he then illustrates. Do not harden your heart to God's word. That is God's command. That is God's command to us. That is God's call to us as he seeks uh, our worship. He says, do not harden your hearts to my word. And as we look at the rest of the passage, I think the question in our mind we should ask ourselves is, what does it look like to harden your heart to God's voice? So let's turn our attention to the events uh, that, that God is referring to in this illustration. Uh, let me read it again. And then we're going to recount the events in chronological order because this will help us see and feel the weight of God's command. So let's look at verse 7 through 11. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on that day at Massa, in the wilderness where your fathers tested me. They tried me, though they had seen what I did. For 40 years, I was disgusted with that generation. I said, they are a people whose hearts go astray. They do not know my ways. So I swore in my anger, they will not enter my rest. So actually, we're going to start in verse 9 rather than verse 8. Because in order to have a hardened heart, it kind of implies that hearts were at one point softened. So verse 9 talks about that they had tested and tried God even though they had seen what I did. End of verse 9. So what did they see? What did uh, the wilderness generation see. Well, they saw God deliver his people in the most spectacular way, which I think actually suggests to me that this psalm is very intentionally crafted. I'm like, is, is, there, is there anywhere where God's creator, sovereign power, and his shepherd presence are manifested together more clearly than in the Exodus, where uh, God delivers his people from Egypt? It is at the Exodus where God decisively shows that he is the great king above all gods, to use the language of our passage. Uh, so, so God sends plagues in such a way that the Egyptian people are afflicted and that their gods are undermined. But God's people are left unscathed. 
some miracles that I think kind of recall God's creator power. He, he turns the Nile to blood. There's massive hail. There's deep darkness. And then God makes abundantly clear to his people that he is delivering Israel through the Passover sacrifice. God judges Egypt by killing the firstborn son in each home that does not have the blood of the lamb painted over its doors. And then Pharaoh finally relents. He lets God's people go, but he soon changes his mind and goes after them with his world-class army. So the people of God, they are cornered with their backs to the Red Sea. And again, we see God's creator power in action. And even kind of picks up the language of this of our of our passage earlier. Exodus 14 says, "The Lord drove the sea back with a powerful east wind all that night, and what turned the sea into dry land. So the waters were divided, and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with the waters like a wall to them on their right and their left. And so after." Going through the Red Sea, we see, uh, they see Moses ascending a terrifying mountain to receive a word from God. So verse 9, what did this generation see? They saw nothing short of the most awe-inspiring display of God's power and deliverance of any generation in redemptive history to date, probably only to be compared to the second coming of Jesus Christ. They saw the gods of their captors utterly humiliated. They saw the army of their oppressor totally defeated. They saw God's salvation through judgment. They see God protecting his people and keeping his promises. I mean, is this not a God that they can trust to the ends of the earth? Is this not a God who, when he speaks, they should listen so naturally, their response is a soft heart. They embrace God's authority in light of his deliverance. They have images burned in their minds of God's power and presence and authority in their lives. They sing God's praise. They promise to obey God at Mount Sinai. And friends, it was this victory, this victory, this, this great display of God's power and presence that compelled Israel many generations later to sing joyfully to the rock of their salvation. This generation understood in quite vivid, visceral terms what, it, what, it, what, it, what it's like to be delivered, to be saved from a physical enemy, physical dangers, physical death. And Israel's deliverance points to a, a, a spiritual reality, to a greater deliverance. And so if, if you are here this morning, you don't understand yourself to be a Christian, I'm so glad you're here. And I just want to kind of make one thing clear to, to you and to all of us. You see, Christians are not people who first get their act together to be approved by God. To be a Christian, to be a part of God's people, is to see and to behold what God has done for you in human history. Christians believe that they have been delivered by powers even more fearsome than Pharaoh and his army. 
Uh, we, we've been delivered from sin and Satan and death in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So, so even though the Exodus events were filled with spectacular details, the Exodus did not deal with the underlying issue facing God's people. There was no ultimate deliverance or provision of forgiveness for sin. But in Christ, in Jesus Christ, the, the power and the presence of God come together in his life and in his death and resurrection. Jesus lived perfectly among God's people, the life you and I could not live, and died as a substitutionary sacrifice, as only he could, uh, in order for all who would trust in him and believe could be saved from their sins. And so if you turn away from your sins and you trust in Christ's work for you, both today and for the rest of your life, you can be a part. Of God's people. Don't leave today uh, not having dealt with this truth. If you came with someone, I encourage you to, to talk with them after the service. I'd be happy to talk with you. And I think, many, I think everyone in this congregation uh, would be happy to talk with you if you have questions about this. So Israel has a soft heart because of the Exodus. If you're here and, you're, if you, and you call yourself a Christian, you have a soft heart because of Christ's work on the cross and his resurrection and his now reign. Jesus, the great shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep, he says in John 10, 27, My sheep hear my voice. I know them, and they follow me. So if you're a Christian here today, this warning here is for you too. Just like how Israel's salvation came uh, from hearing and obeying, so too Christians today, members of Hinson Baptist Church, we have the option to hear his voice or to harden our hearts. Because something significant happens at a place called Meribah and Massa. That explains what it looks like to harden your heart. And this is an excerpt. This, is, this illustration is used to encourage uh, Old Testament saints. And it's picked up in Hebrews chapter 3 and 4, which we'll actually hear preached from in a couple weeks. Uh, so it's also applicable for the, for the New Testament people of God. So what, so what happened at Meribah and Massa? You know, these, these aren't maybe top-of-mind Old Testament Bible stories that we teach our children. Um, well, there are, there are two similar incidents that refer to these places. One can be found in Exodus chapter 17, verse 1 to 7, and the other can be found in Numbers chapter 20, verse 1 to 13. We don't have enough time to kind of go into both of those passages, but as we heard Mary say earlier, in both of these stories, Israel is thirsty and they complain to their leadership. And now listen as I, as, I, as I read the staggering questions they ask of both Moses and God at this place. First, Exodus chapter 17, verse 3 and verse 7. Why did you ever bring us up from Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? 
Exodus 17, verse 7. So he named the place, Moses named the place Massa and Meribah because the Lord, um, because Israel complained and because they tested the Lord saying, is the Lord among us or not? Numbers chapter 20, verse 4 to 5, a similar uh, questions are asked. Why have you brought the Lord's assembly into this wilderness for us and our livestock to die here? Why have you led us up from Egypt to bring us to this evil place? It's not a place of grain, figs, vines, pomegranates, and there is no water to drink. How does the generation that experienced God's power and presence say that? So what does it look like to harden your heart to God? I think we can glean from these two stories that to harden your heart against God is, is to engage in persistent disbelief that God is powerful, good, or present. I'll say that one more time. It is persistent unbelief that God is powerful, good, or present. I mean, we, we have these questions recorded here in, in Exodus and in Numbers, but I mean, do we really think that this was the only time an Israelite thought this thought or vocalized this thought to their neighbor or to their leadership? Hardening your heart looks like questioning God's power and presence when, when life gets uncomfortable or hard or, or things don't go according to plan. Hardening your heart looks like accusing God of not fulfilling his promises to you on your terms. You know, I've, I've been wrestling with this temptation myself to harden my heart in my own life. Uh, my dad... Uh, in this past month, got a late-stage cancer diagnosis with treatment starting next week. My family were hoping to go down to California before this starts. And it, it, was, it was stunning news on a number of fronts. And it prompted all kinds of thoughts in my own mind. Like, God, do you mean that my dad might not see my adopted sister graduate from high school? That's not fair to him. That's not fair to her. God, do you mean that my dad won't always be around to, to be the grandfather to our children? Uh, our children call him yeah, yeah. That's not fair to my kids. And God, what about my mom? This isn't fair to her. You know, I recognize this has been a hard time for everyone in the church and our uh, everyone, especially people in our church. You know, the, the pandemic has been hard on people. Loneliness and mental health challenges have spiked. There has been really no one left unaffected by either the pandemic or even just more broadly the effects of living in a broken and sinful world. We have endless opportunities to routinely question God's power and goodness and presence in our lives because life never goes according to plan. So before we get too hard on Israel, we should be looking 
at our own hearts. Because, because there's a kind of presumption upon God that begins to dull his authority in our lives. Uh, and when his authority is dulled in our lives, it makes it harder to hear his voice as either our own voices are elevated or the voices of the world speak to us. When we begin to doubt God, it erodes his authority. Uh, if you're a believer, it's saying, you know, well, I'll take this whole salvation thing, but I want to drop the authority, especially when God's will crosses my own. Instead of submitting to his voice, our voice becomes stronger. Instead of letting his word judge us, we use our words to judge what he is doing in our lives. And I just want to pause here and just make an important note, um, because there, there is a fine but essential line of difference between hardening your heart and godly lament, which is you know, a, a passionate expression of sorrow or grief. You know, both... Both hardening your heart and godly lament involve addressing God with the hardship in your life. They're, they're both a form of grief, an opportunity to question God. But what's the difference? The difference is our heart posture. God is concerned about our hearts. We see uh, verse 8, do not harden your hearts. Verse 10, they are a people whose hearts go astray. You see, hardening your heart comes from a fundamental place of doubt and distrust in what God has done and how God has orchestrated the events of your life. Lament comes from a place of trust. Hardening your heart, it closes you off from God. uh, And the other, godly lament, it brings the difficult things you are going through to God, trusting that he will hear and make all things right in his time. And so this is not a discouragement to anyone here to, uh, to not bring your burdens, your sorrows, the hardships of your life to God. But it is an encouragement to, to watch your heart. Are you hardening your heart or do you still have, a, as you go through life, is your posture toward God a soft one? So what are we to make of verse 10 and 11? Well, there there are clearly eternal consequences for hardening your heart. But here's the thing. The God who speaks with authority, get this, he he also listens. And of course, it's it's a wonderful comfort to us that God listens. Uh, Verses 1 through 7 wouldn't make a lot of sense if God was not a listening God. Uh, You know, we we can, we can, he hears our joyful and triumphant worship, just as, as, uh, you know, God heard Israel crying when they were in Egypt. So too, God hears our prayers of praise and thanksgiving and confession, our supplications. But in this context, the hearing God is a sobering challenge to us. You know, we might think in our foolishness that God only hears us when we directly address him when singing on Sunday morning. 
But as we heard earlier, God is, God is the sovereign creator. He is the God who knows his people intimately. And so God hears all of our spoken words, whether to him or to one another. Our unspoken words are just as audible to him as, as uh, my words to you coming through the sound system. God hears our self-talk, our thinking, and wondering out loud about whether he is good or in control. He knows who hears his voice, and he knows who follows his way. So my question to you is, what are you saying or thinking that God can hear? So maybe you're a bit like me, and you need very little reminder, very little reminder to know how often you have hardened your heart to the voice of God. Maybe you are here and you feel condemned. Or you're here and you're not a Christian and you realize that you have spent your whole life hardening your heart to God's word. Maybe you're just not sure whether believer or unbeliever, whether you can soften your heart. And this is why the psalm opens by declaring God is the rock of our salvation. Uh, remember how the disciples said in the Gospels, who then can be saved? And Jesus says, with man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. So believer if, and unbeliever, if you are here, you can hear my voice. God, God does not warn merely for warning's sake. God warns because he delights in saving. God warns because he delights in adding sheep to his fold. God warns because he delights to be the shepherd of his people. And friends, he is able to do this for you and for me. And so as one sheep to another, I want to encourage you to heed the shepherd's call to worship. Do not harden your heart. Because here's what this psalm makes clear. The sovereign creator and his son are concerned about your heart today. Do you find yourself hardening your heart to God in some areas of your life? Because here's the thing, and and in conclusion, God detests being taken for granted because a God taken for granted does not receive true worship. It's like taking the benefits without the relationship, which is really no relationship at all. It's like sharing a spouse or sharing a bed with a spouse, but you know their heart is somewhere else. God is always God, and He wants to be the God of His people. He's the good shepherd. He's always present with His people, always providing, always protecting them. But those who would not have Him as God, He will not have as His people. So at the end of the psalm, we are confronted with two ways to live. You have the person, Psalm 95, verse 1 to 7, who has seen what God has done and listens to him and worships with joyful reverence. And then you have the person in Psalm 95, verse 8 to 11. You have, you have heard, you have seen what God has done, and you have found him wanting. So this morning, will you be someone who takes God at his word Or will you be someone who takes them for granted? Will you pray with me?
Father, we come to you because we know that we, we know that there is nowhere else to go. And so, God, you, you know our hearts. You know we are fickle. You know we are fallible. We, we pray for grace to be able to hear your voice. We pray for grace to be able to trust all that you are doing and orchestrating in our life. We pray that we'd be able to hear your voice. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.